Podcast number 179. This edition is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, your premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America, and Tractor Zoom delivering insights and the, work, the official work boot of Moving Iron Podcast at Dry Shod Boots. So this week, um, I have a guest on every week named Sean Hackett with Hackett Financial out of Book Raton, Florida. And Sean is quite honestly a wealth of knowledge, and there's not there's not much he doesn't know or follow when it comes to the ag markets and the things that affect the ag markets in a short term and in a long term. And Sean, um, I first met Sean about a year and a half ago now, and we he called me out of the blue and said, you know what, I want to talk to you about these grand solar minimums. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I started researching it, and I gave it, I gave it, I kind of went back to some some stuff I learned in high school, some stuff I learned in college, and then I kind of started tripping some triggers, and and I started remember talking about. It. So this is will be about the third time we've had this conversation about that. And I was talking with Sean um, this week, and I was like, you know, we probably had to do a, a grand solar minimum update because last time we did this, you talked about how there was going to be an early start to spring and a little bit dryness, a little bit more dryness in the in the air going into planting, and um, that that could possibly carry on into uh, the actual growing season. So as I was sitting there looking out my window when we were talking, I noticed that it was significantly warmer than it should be this time of the year, and it was significantly drier, even in out here in the, the desert of the Nebraska Panhandle, um, than it should be as well. So I was like, probably should give an update on what's going on. And he goes, you know what? There's another thing we should talk about too, and it is... Uh, grand solar minimums and sun cycles as far as um, how these pandemics and outbreaks break out. And there's a very distinct line in in time where you can see where these pandemics flare up and, and then die out. And they're all based around these solar cycles. So I thought, man, I'm game. Nothing more timely than that right now. So, Sean, how you doing, man? And welcome to the show. I'm pretty good, Casey. I'm, pretty, I'm looking forward to this discussion. It's something that... Uh everyone's starting to think about now because of what's been going on with the coronavirus and whether this is just the beginning or the end. And I think after we're done with our uh, talk, um, the listeners might have a better understanding that this is probably the beginning of something, not the end of it. Right. So, so yeah, I am, uh, I'm really excited to hear about it. So we've heard all about the coronavirus. We've, we kind of know all the, everything there is to know about it. Um, we pretty well know where it came from, how it started, blah, 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 blah. And, the things virus needs are are cooler temperatures. You know, you know the 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 more cool, more winter-like weather that we have, the longer those kind of things last. Um, these insurgents of cold air and those kind of things. When it gets warms up, then it cools off and warms up, cools off. These are all all great things for viruses. So I guess talk about what you see happening. Well, first off. Where are we at in, in, in the solar cycle that we're at now? Where are we at in the trough, and, and what does that look like? And then how does that going to support um, these pandemics and stuff we've seen moving forward? Well, as you, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, we know that viruses, all kinds of viruses, not just influenza, but coronaviruses, plagues, bubonic plagues, all kinds of different uh, viruses out there, they, they need three 
things to thrive. They need cooler temperatures, as you correctly said. They need lower humidity. Uh, and they need lower sunlight, lower UV. Uh, if they have those three conditions exist on a consistent basis, viruses that are around normally start to activate, start to uh, spread more readily, start to mutate more. And so when we think about this, what, is, what are the features of a grand solar cycle minimum? The general feature is that you're dealing with a general cooler temperature regime. And just think of the desert in Arizona, for example, in Flagstaff. You can have 90 degrees during the day, and you can have minus 20 right. at night because dry air yeah. very, very quickly. So when you get a polar vortex like we had you know, a year ago, and it's minus 30 degrees real temperature, that doesn't happen in humid air. It only can happen if you have very, very dry air. So, so and, and, of course, what does a grand solar cycle mean? It means that the sunspots, the solar radiation, the UV hitting the Earth is going down. Less sun hitting the Earth, less UV hitting the Earth. It also promotes increased cloud cover. We've discussed in prior discussions about this as cosmic rays fire up. The more clouds you have, the more it blocks the sun from coming in. So all this should conceptually, theoretically, produce the perfect conditions for much larger outbreaks of viruses throughout history. So what we do is we have a thesis, we have a hypothesis, right? And we say, well, let's go back and let's see if the evidence supports that hypothesis. So what we did with Casey's, we went back to 1500 to the present day, and we looked back at all, uh, we looked at the solar radiation relative to reported viral outbreaks uh, throughout history. And what we found was is that 70% of all epidemics, pandemics of all kinds occurred during grand solar cycle minimum phases where the overall solar radiation was lower than the norm. That's, that's amazing when you think about it. 70% uh, happened during these periods of time. And, uh, and so... When one looks at that, given that we are just begun this next grand solar cycle, one would have expected that our first, uh, and, and when you look at the 12-year solar cycle, Casey, you know, the, the peak to trough, they all occur primarily at the trough periods of the 12-year solar cycle. So where are we? We're at the trough of the current 12-year solar cycle. We've just begun a grand solar cycle. So the period that we would expect to be a high vulnerability to our first meaningful viral outbreak would be right about now. And just lo and behold, it's exactly yeah. it's, it's, it's come about. And, um, and, and so, so the cycle is repeating, I guess is what I'm getting at. It's repeating, and it's also showing the vulnerability of our food system, of our just-in-time inventory system. And, and the, there's... The reasons why we go through food shortages during grand solar cycles in the past isn't only because of increased weather volatility, isn't only because of shorter growing cycles due to later frost in the spring and earlier frost in the fall, it's also because these pandemics come out and disrupt the global food system that we're under um, and, um, and, and actually cause... Uh, you know, cause dynasties to fail. You know, you've talked about this before, Casey, about how many Chinese dynasties have failed during these periods because of, of a lack of food and, and increased disease outbreaks. So, 
So this is all consistent um, with that. So, so I guess the, the, um, the answer is yes. Grand solar cycles are promoting, have promoted, and will continue to promote greater periods of viral outbreak. There's really nothing we can do to prevent the cycle from happening. The only we can do is to do our best to adjust to it, to alter our behavior towards it, so, and, and to adjust our food system for it. So, because this, once again, this is not our last run of a viral outbreak. We can have right. many more before this is over. I sure hope we don't shut the whole economy down every single time oh, we have man. a viral outbreak. We have to do something different, yeah. uh, is what I'm getting at. We really do. And, and I hope this is a good learning curve that probably this wasn't the best approach they shut the whole world down like this, but maybe you have to have a better, more balanced approach going forward. So. Yeah, this this thing with the economy is, I mean, the first couple of weeks, it was like, oh, cool, look, you know, it's whatever, you know. <clears throat> and then people started realizing, like, oh, crap, I don't have a paycheck coming in, or, oh, crap, a businessman, I don't have any revenue coming in. Or then now the government's like, oh, crap, we don't have any tax revenue coming in, and we are barely hanging on anyway, so, mm. Yeah, government's not known for stockpiling cash for a rainy day, so it's it's definitely not something they have laying around out there. And they're starting to feel the crunch from that, especially with the amount of nurses and doctors and everything else they got running around that they're trying to EMTs and and other frontline people, you know, police, fire, all those different folks. And and now they're they're starting to, I mean, it's getting bad. So we need to figure this out pretty quick. Well, the the, the problem that you know, I, I know, you know. I, look, I'm just an observer trying to figure this out like everybody else. But when I look at um, what's happened up to this point, I've only seen the studies on what could the, could, could the virus do in terms of how many people could die in the U.S. And, and globally. And these models that they came up with and the assumptions they made, I have not seen anyone analyze what are the death consequences for shutting the economy down, oh, for yeah. starving people yeah. around the world, for... Uh, for destroying their economic viability, this increased suicide, the increased alcoholism, drug abuse, violence. I mean, you know, there are lots of studies, and I've been looking at them, that suggest that there is a huge humanitarian consequence to ruining the economic viability of people's lives that I have seen no study about. You know, when you're trying to make a big decision, you're trying to look at different scenarios and trying to say what's the balanced approach that is the best outcome in a bad situation and I'm not sure we have looked at the whole picture correctly. We've only focused on how many deaths can we avoid have, have, having with the coronavirus. We've not determined how can we avoid deaths from ruining the U.S. and global economy and that's really something we need to have a, a much bigger discussion about when we get beyond this virus about how to handle this better going forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at any any depressed time or big recession of any kind, whether it's the 1930s or the 1980s or 2008, 2009. I mean, the number of, of, of suicides in those time frames were drastically higher. I mean, infinitely higher than, than they are normally. So it's just anytime there's a stressed time, of frame, time frame or people can't find work or they're, they feel inadequate, there's going to be all kinds of things that come from that. And I, I think what we see happening here is, is no different than that. So, I mean, I guess as you... The, the information that, that you and the research that you've presented over the, over these last two episodes or last two shows that we've done have um, pointed to that 2021, 2022, 
are going to be uh, we're, we're heading into the worst part of this of this solar minimum um, time frame and um, it, we're talking like a, a solid 10-year period here of, of some really strong um, um, lack of sun um, solar radiation and 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 you know how, how the the overall environment or the climate I guess the overall climate is going to start shifting towards a um, some very drastic um, cold spells that last like where winter starts sooner um, very warm summers um, but they're you know two and a half three months long type of thing it's, and it's it's a very it's on off switch that kind of comes and it's it's a you're talking about snow and September um, time frame so I guess coronavirus where we're at now these other viruses that could start popping up and as we head into these cooler dramatically less uv radiation than what we see now um less um you know more cool air humidity those kind of things are just going to start kind of popping up a little bit i guess how how do you foresee the coming couple years here and how that's going to affect the overall in climate and economy both of, of what we see happening We've always lived in a crisis economy. What I mean by that is that no one believes um, in, a, in a rogue wave can occur until after it occurs, and then they now realize that it was actually far more likely to occur than they originally had believed. So, for example, the September 11 attacks. You know, prior to that, you know, no one really believed anyone could take down. Uh, you know, the, the, these two pillars of New York City, the way that they did, but then we. We had an awakening. Oh my gosh, we, we, this can happen now. You know, we're vulnerable to a terrorist attack like that. Right. I view this pandemic as a wake-up call that we all sort of, in the back of our mind, knew inherently to some degree that viruses are there and there's a risk. But but this just rusted the risk squarely on our heads that we've entered a different period than the period that we've been under, where these viral outbreaks are going to be becoming more and more prevalent. And this roadway, the shock to the system is now awoken everybody that this is a new normal that we have to adjust to. The next part of this cycle, this grand solar cycle, is going to be this weather, this first major, major weather event that's coming in 2021-22. That's going to be the coronavirus moment for weather. It's going to be what absolutely is the roadway that no one actually they, they sort of kind of have a little bit of an idea. It could, but they don't really. Then when it happens, they're going to go, "Oh my gosh, this is this is what we're getting into, and this is not the last of these." I think we're really going through a, a awakening to what this new cycle is and what the 2021 cycle is. If, if we want to repeat it, we certainly can. Is this a La Nina is coming? This is the transition year, as we talked about before. But 2021-22 is a, the first La Nina in this new 200-year cycle, grand solar cycle that we've just entered into. That means extraordinarily long, cold, polar vortex-infested winter, very, very short growing season, but hot, dry summer. And so when you, when you think this through, Casey, about what this is going to look like, it's going to look like something like extremely late frost in the spring, blisteringly hot drought conditions in the summer, extremely early fall frost, and an endless 
never-ending winter until the following spring. And if you think about a little bit of, we had a little bit of a flavor of that last year, right? Mm. We had this never-ending spring, yeah. endless rain, late frost, growing season. You know, we, we, we had a little bit of a, of a teaser, and it was really bad one. I mean, it was really bad. But it's really mild compared to what I believe we're going to be talking about after we get through that period of time. And once we get through that, the good news is I believe everyone's eyes will be wide open to what we're facing. And once everyone's wide open to what we're facing, then solutions can come forth about how do we address, uh, address the situation. If everyone continues to be in more of a you know, denial state or, or not really uh, um, absorbing or, or taking the, the risks seriously or, or not willing to act on it, it, we, we need to have the crisis first, unfortunately, before we, take, we get aggressive action to remedy it. And so um, you know, that's where I think that we're at, and, and we're right on the doorstep to this. You know, I don't want to see this. I've told you this before. You know, I'm, I'm a business of making correct forecasts, and that's my job, and that's how I stay in business. This is one of the forecasts that I really, really, really hope and pray that I have always said that I wish this forecast turned out to be correct. Because I really don't wish this upon myself, my family, or yours. Right. But, yeah. I, but everything that I see, all the evidence so far, all the signposts that I've been looking to follow, that I even we talked about following, are actually all occurring and confirming we're heading down this path. And so I don't see anything that suggests that this forecast is going to be proven to be anything but correct um, as we move into this period of time. And and it's it's going to take the uh, vulnerability of our food, just-in-time food system that we're all now getting concerned about, and it's now going to flow into that mix an actual food shortage. And yeah. so that's going to cause uh, very, very high ag prices. It's going to cause a lot of money to go into the ag sector, believe it or not, after uh, a decade of no money going into the sector. And solutions are going to come forward. I am not a Debbie Downer. I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm not an apocalyptic. It's Armageddon, you know, uh, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm a realist, but, but there is a pathway forward, and we will get through this. But unfortunately, the nasty part of the crisis is in front of us first before we can get to the other side of the solutions that need to happen. So. Okay, so now let's talk about, about food supply, what that looks like. If you take a look at <clears throat> where we're at now, we have, we have historic um, supply. You know, we've got, um, especially right now with what's going on with ethanol plants and the way that look. I mean, 40% of the U.S. corn crop goes into uh, ethanol production. So there's a, we have a potential to have a very large um, supply of corn. Obviously, when, when oil prices rebound back the other way and they start going back up and then ethanol becomes uh, a, something that makes sense again. There's going to be an opportunity to uh, to eat up that forty percent of that corn supply to get back into the ethanol business, but um, no one seems to know when that is. The Saudis decided they were going to kind of test the waters with with the Russians about who uh, who controlled more of the oil market and so on and so forth, and and uh, they they proved that they could do it, but also at the same time the uh, coronavirus really snuck up on them and did a number that they weren't necessarily, I mean, I think they knew the economy was going to slow down and they knew that was a, the right thing to do, but they didn't realize it was going to cut as deep as it did. Uh, not just in the U.S. or in Europe, but worldwide and what that looks like. I've made the comment a couple times. My wife has been home you know, with our children 
since it started for the past five weeks, and she hasn't got a tank of gas in five weeks. I mean, so she, whatever fuel she had at, when this took place, till now she still she still has. So, um, and I'm sure that's the same across everywhere. You know, I'm sure there's very few people that have gotten fuel over the time frame. So, I guess until that economy starts popping back up and things start rolling and, and get taken off and, and, and doing what we're seeing to, to, to happen, um, this oil thing is going to be be here, right? So let's talk about the food shortage and stuff you talked about rolling in 2021 and, and viruses and how that works. And then what are we going to do? I mean, how does it how does it work? What are we? What are the? What are some of the answers or some of the steps that you see that we should be taking now and into the future to to mitigate um, any kind of economic hiccups we see here? Well, first of all, uh, the, the worst thing that could happen going into this 2021-22 weather scenario is to have what just took place with this virus. Right. We're destroying Agreed. farmers' balance sheet. Um, We're destroying the the just-in-time inventory food system globally. We're destroying trade. Um, and we're telling every producer, stop producing everything now. And so they will stop producing everything now. We're, we're, we're going to see it across the board, including crude oil and everything else. And so right now we're in the demand immediately stops, but the supply keeps going for a while. And so we have this, as you said, this oversupply that's made oil go negative if we didn't have storage for it for a little while. Um, that's the negative part. But then there's the, that's the yin. The yang of this is, as you move out to later in the year, and especially to 21, 22, the supply now then falls, and then this demand starts going back up. And there's no one to supply it anytime soon. Even after prices get back to something more favorable to the farmer and the producer, their balance sheets are so destroyed, it's going to be years before they even think about doing anything other than rebuilding their balance sheets. Right. You know, maybe, maybe buying a new piece of equipment after you know having the you know the, the used equipment they've been using for a while. I mean, I'm just I'm just talking out loud that you know it's going to be a while after destroying the food system that we've done to get that going. So we're going to have this significant lack of uh, imbalance between demanding above supply for the extended period of time at a time that our production is going to be hit even further. It's really the perfect story. If you had to dial in how to maximize the shortages that were already going to be coming, having this virus right now, I mean, it's almost, you just couldn't have written a more, more uh, perfect script to, to maximize that trauma, if you want to call it that way. So what, what should people do? What can people do? What should governments do? Well, I think every government realizes that this just-in-time inventory situation is no longer viable. You know, in this new weather and uh, viral infested pattern that we're in, having just enough food on hand is no longer going to cut it. And, and we've been seeing India halting rice exports, for example. We've been seeing Russia saying we're not going to be selling any more wheat after May because we don't want, we're afraid to lose any more of our wheat supplies. We're seeing this, the hoarding, we're seeing the stockpiles already begun if those countries that do not produce enough of their own food are already realizing they are in a bad, bad place. So, you know, so countries are starting to do what they should have been doing long ago, which is stockpile some food, get some reserves up, uh, especially those things that people need to have to survive on. Um, 
the other thing is, as individuals, you, me, um, you know, we need to have more food on hand than a couple of days. Right. So we need to have more food. You know, when you're going out, sixty was it sixty five percent of all everyone, all Americans are going out for their food needs on a weekly basis. Um, uh, that ain't going to happen again. I mean, we're, we're going to be going to a situation where we need to have three months of food on hand in, in various capacities, or six months of food on hand. Each individual needs to have, you know, kind of a an ability that, if for whatever reason, you know. We have a, a virus that shuts things down, or the, the, shore, the, the shelves are empty, or the weather is so bad that they can't transport the, the food from the Midwest to where it needs to go, like we saw you know, where there was, there was uh, transportation problems because of the snow from getting it from the California to the Midwest and such. You know, that we, we ourselves need to have food that we can rely on ourselves um, to have our own food. You know, look, everyone knows you can have your own greenhouse. Uh, a garden in the back, and you can start growing stuff and doing things. And I just think we need to get a little more independent ourselves. Think about local production, local farmers serving the local community, you know, versus you know having buying our produce from Mexico and bringing it in. You know, I'm, I'm thinking out loud now, but I mean, I think that we realize that if our food system just in time is breaking down, and we are, you know destroying that system and we need to get more independent of that and we need to be thinking about how we can do things more locally and ourselves to stockpile food and be less dependent upon a system that may or may not serve us and get further on to the cycle and things get more difficult to manage yeah that's definitely something that <clears throat> is uh is out there right now i mean i think more people are, are looking at especially what's happening with just look at the supply chain right yeah. our supply chain it's not a lack of supply it's the supply chain that is that is screwing things up, right? It's the fact that there is a segment of of food production that goes to the consumer, the grocery stores, those kind of things, and you have another segment that goes over here to the guy that's has a restaurant and is buying a ten pound tube of hamburger and uh, five pounds of, of shredded cheese, right? And how that gets packaged and what that looks like. You have entire factories set up, food processing plants, those kind of things that are set up to do just that. Right, and then you've got what's going on over here. So you know that is a, uh, and it's a horrible injustice when you look at food shelves that are that are barren, and now they're out there dumping milk or their um, cattle. There's cattle in feedlots that can't go anywhere because there's nowhere to to take them. Our processing plants are shut down, and those kind of things. So um, being more thing, proactive is definitely a big thing. Well, the other thing too is you know should five, you know, uh, meat packing houses control so much of the market that they exactly. can have broken margins, yep. uh, but yet they can't process all the animals for the demand that's needed for them. I mean, you know, there's a lot of questions here about how we got ourselves into this this delicate food distribution system that um, was just thrown, thrown, thrown under the bus. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's investigations going on, as you know, regarding yep. uh, that whole thing, and I do hope that there's some some solutions that start to mitigate some of that risk. The other thing, in terms of, you know, look, viruses are, are going to come. We can't stop them. Uh, we can do what we can to prevent getting infected by viruses, but you can't prevent, you, you can't reduce the risk to zero unless you want to just live in your house and never get, go out. And if you want to live your life that way, certainly that's a solution. But a bigger thing is to just have better overall health. Um, you know, what are the, the natural um, 
vitamins that have tended that have study after study after study that support one's immune system. We know vitamin C and vitamin D in our work continues to show up as two of the most important vitamins uh, that uh, help support one's immune system and that many, many sick people, when they look at what they lack, they lack vitamin C and vitamin D uh, in their diets and in their, in their composition. And so, you know, I would think that uh, if, if we, I've been looking at the data that orange juice sales have, are up something like 25 to 30% uh, over the last 30 days. And, and we've been on a 15-year downtrend for orange juice consumption. But now people are maybe beginning to realize that having a cup of OJ every morning, maybe our, our grandparents weren't so stupid after all for doing it. Maybe, maybe they actually knew yeah. that that was a good thing to do. We're just yeah. outside of the whole idea. So, and, you know, being, you know, being in better shape, you know, going for a run, you know, I mean, just... I think if we if reducing the stress, all these things will help you, you know, fight off more viruses than not. And, and even if you do get it, being able to fight it off. I mean, there's a, look, most people are getting the coronavirus and are, and are, and are getting cured. I mean, are, are not are getting through it and, and are fine. You know, we're, we're focusing on the half a percent that are having a problem, but most people are okay with this. They get it. They feel bad for a while. After a week, they, they come out of it and they're okay. So, we want to be that person. You want to be that person that gets it. So I, <laughs> I'm not feeling so good, but you come out of it, you know. And so, you, know, you got to take you got to take your own health upon yourself, upon your family to do something. You know, I think we're all been guilty of, you know, maybe lacking on the, the diet side and the exercise side and being too stressed, uh, doing too many things at one time. And you know, we're we're paying the price for it a little bit, you know. And maybe this is a wake up call to re to reconsider what's important in our lives and, and how we really want to go about, you know, going through what's left of it because we never know when our last day may be. I don't want it more of it here, but, you know, I don't know. I could get in the car today to go to the gas station and I don't make it back. It's possible, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, if you go to the gas station in the car wreck, you're going to be the only one there, man. She must have hit a pole or something on the way over there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, I'm measuring how many weeks to the gallon. <laughs> <laughs> right on there you go. <laughs> Not how many gallons, how many weeks to the gallon? I'm getting three weeks to the gallon right yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Well, Sean, this is uh, this is interesting as usual. Um, always good stuff. Love talking about this stuff um, and what what the future holds, what that looks like. And um, quite frankly, everything you said that that we've talked about so far um, when I first met you. Till, till now about weather and, and how these uh, solar cycles are affecting everything involved. It's all happened. So, I mean, with uh, with some uh, staggering accuracy. So, I was hoping one of these days you'd be wrong, but but dang it, Sean, you're not you're not going to be wrong on this well, one either. So. Pray I'm wrong about 21, 22. Just, just, I, I actually want to be proven wrong. I really do. But um, until then, I'm going with that forecast. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, I think you're probably going to be right. So, yeah. Yeah. well, Sean, good stuff. So, you have uh, you got a website out there, Hackett Financial, um, or HackettAdvisors.com, and, and you know check that out. Is there anything else that you that you have out there right now that that's worth uh, people taking taking a look at? Well, I mean, we you know we we have our our natural cycle report. That I know a lot of your listeners have already requested. You know, we do have our work on pandemics. Mm-hmm. A separate report that we did. We focus on pandemics and the history of them and the viral pathway. We talked about. In February, that April would likely be the peak for U.S. and EU infections. It looks like that, that is, in fact, occurring. And we also talked about how markets typically react post-virus. So, you know, that 
Well, those reports are really what we call special reports that we put up from time to time when we really think something's important that we want to talk about separate from our normal weekly report. We talk about markets and capital flows and, 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 and more near-term stuff. But you know, I think if your listeners haven't had a chance to read either the natural cycle paper that we wrote or the pandemic paper they wrote, I think they would really find them very informative and give them a perspective on where we are and where we're going so that they can prepare whatever they need to for their business and their personal lives. Right on. Where do they get those reports at? I would say the, you know, the best way to do that, uh, Casey, is to just email us at Sean, S-H-A-W-N is a Nancy, at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. Just email us, say, hey, I saw, I heard John, um, you know, Moving Iron uh, podcast, we talked about a couple of these reports. Um, could you send it to me, and we'll just get it right out to your listeners, you know, for free. Yeah, check it out, man. It's worth the email because the information that you get. Um, he sends me those those reports, and I read them, and uh, they're it's great information. So uh, do yourself a favor and uh, send Sean an email and, and ask him for those reports because they're it's good stuff. So well, Sean, uh, good stuff as usual, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on a Saturday morning, and uh, hopefully, uh, happy Saturday. <laughs> you gotta go move some rocks, baby. You gotta move some That's rocks. Good. All right. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Make sure you check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Also check out movingironllc.com for all the latest uh, blog posts uh, that I've put out there. I'm working on one now. Hopefully I'll have it out here uh, next, uh, hopefully this weekend, if not first part of next week. And uh, check out the Global Ag Network and all the great podcasters out there as well. Also, if you want to attend the Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee, September 1 through 3, you can listen to Sean give a give an uplifting um, presentation on, on what's going to happen with the markets here coming up. So it's it's going to be good stuff. And uh, as usual, Sean's, Sean's presentations, if you haven't seen them, are uh, well worth your time to uh, check out. So until next time, I am Casey Seymour, Sean Hackett. Let's go with Smart, folks. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving iron.